Hi, and welcome to today's episode. Today I'm so lucky to be talking to a fellow podcaster. She is the podcast host of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast, Rebecca Larson. If you've heard any of her episodes, she is a fount of information about everything Tudor's, and it was so great to talk to her. I really hope you enjoy it. As you know, I love interviewing academics, students, scholars, amateurs, and even other podcasters. Not all the subjects here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie, I'm a French-Canadian, and this is my podcast. Now we're going into some Tudor history, right? So today I'm talking with Rebecca from the Tudor's Dynasty podcast, and I'm so happy she's able to join me to talk about one of her passionate topics. So I will let Rebecca present her topic and give you an idea of what we're going to be talking about today. Hi, Rosie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on the show. And today we're going to talk about my favorite character in Tudor history. Well, he wasn't a character. He was a real person. And I'm referring to Sir Thomas Seymour, who was the brother of the Queen Consort, the third wife of Henry VIII, Jane Seymour. And Thomas is one of those intriguing and, in my opinion, unfairly judged characters in Tudor history. And so I have made it my mission to study him for the last four years. And I hope that today and in the future, I can show people a different side of him. It's always nice when we can revisit and understand people a little better when it comes to time periods. So very appreciated. Thank you. I Honestly, I could talk about him all day, every day to anybody. My husband and teenager are grateful that I'm finally talking about him to somebody else. <laughs> yeah, it's like my family and Vikings are like, stop. <laughs> right? Like, no, listen to me. I have something very important to say to you. <laughs> You've already given a small intro, but what time period are we talking about? We're talking about the Tudor era. So the Tudor era was from 1485 to 1603 in England. Thomas lived somewhere between, we believe, 1507 and 1508 till 1549. So right in the midst of Henry VIII's reign and then into the beginning of his son Edward VI's reign, who was, by chance, Thomas's nephew. And so we know that Thomas was around King Henry VIII, but what type of documentation are we looking at to learn about him? Oh, you know, when it comes to Thomas, he was the lesser known of the two Seymour brothers who were at court. So he had an older brother named Edward Seymour, who when their sister Jane became queen, he became the Earl of Hartford and Thomas became a knight. And so in the records, you often see a lot more of Edward because he was more well known at court. He was more involved in the proceedings and such. Thomas came to court in 1530, and that's the first documentation that we have of him in original records that show that he was a servant to Sir Francis Bryan. Many of you would be able to recognize who Sir Francis Bryan is if you watch the Tudors. He was the one with the eye patch. I like to think that he was very much like the character in the show, kind of a ruffian, a scoundrel, but very loyal to his king. And from there, you know, as Jane was at court as the third wife of Henry VIII, Thomas became more and more recognized. Um, throughout time, we can see through original documents that he was granted lots of land. 
and properties and manor houses. Um, but it really wasn't until Henry VIII died in 1547 that we're able to see a little bit more about who Thomas was as a person. And that's the part of his life that I think intrigues me the most. Like, who was this man and what happened to him? Um, who were the people that he surrounded himself with? And who did he marry? And how did this all come to an end for him? Because ultimately he was executed. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> I always think everybody knows everything I do. So I'm sorry for those of you who I just told you he died. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. So let's start at the beginning. So he's Jane's brother, but where can we start with him? Well, the Seymour line in general, if we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, um, you know, if you believe in legend, the Seymour family can be traced back to the time of William the Conqueror's invasion of England. Um, but if we look at something other than the tales that were told over centuries, we should really analyze what evidence remains. So really, the first documented Seymour, or as they were called back then, St. Mar, shows up in the first half of the 13th century to some lands that were held in Monmouthshire. I hope I said that right. I'm clearly not English, so... <laughs> There was a William St. Mar who was documented at this time, and there was some nefarious agreement between him and a Gilbert Marshall, who um, was his brother-in-law. And long story short, that's the first time that we see any documentation. So their family started there. Um, and throughout time, they really made a lot of advantageous marriages, even going up to Thomas's um, father, Sir John Seymour. You know, he made a rather advantageous marriage to Margaret Wentworth, who was a descendant of Edward III. And by that, really, the Seymour family had some prestige. I mean, they were country gentry. They weren't nobles. I wouldn't say necessarily that they were aristocrats, but they had a little bit of nobility in their blood, which was enough, I think, for King Henry to be interested in marrying Jane. Out of curiosity, you mentioned that... King Henry was married to his sister. For people who might not know, what was the circumstance to that? So she was his third wife. How long were they married and what kind of drama was around that and how did she pass? I know there's drama with all of them, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Henry VIII was married six times and his first wife he divorced so that he could um, Mary Anne Boleyn, which is probably the most well-known name in Tudor history. Everybody knows the name Anne Boleyn. And the reason why he wanted to marry Anne was because he was so desperate to have a son and heir. Being only the second Tudor monarch, it was imperative that he carry on the name, carry on the dynasty. And so at that point, he would do whatever it took to have a son. And, you know, Anne offered that possibility to him. She was younger. She was still fertile. He found her attractive. You know, he lusted after her. And so because of Anne, I'd like to say because of Anne, he, there was the break from Rome and the Church of England was formed. And unfortunately for Anne, she was unable to provide him with a son. You know, she had a daughter who became later Queen Elizabeth I, but Henry wanted a son. A daughter would not do. You know, he had Mary from his first marriage who became Queen Mary I. And now here he is, and he's got another daughter with his second wife, and he still has no son. And after miscarriages and such... Um, I think he felt desperate again. He wasn't getting any younger. She wasn't getting any younger. 
And then so enters Jane Seymour as a lady-in-waiting to Anne Boleyn. We don't know if Jane's family um, was behind it, if, if they were scheming to get her into the king's bed to make her his mistress. We just don't know what happened exactly there. But the king, you know, she caught the king's eye. And before you know it, he started sending her little gifts. She began, you know, she rejected them and basically said, you know, I can't accept a gift from you. Um, I'm unmarried. Um, I can only accept gifts from my husband, things like that. Well, lo and behold, eventually there's a case built against Anne Boleyn. And I think with the help of um, King Henry VIII's advisor, Thomas Cromwell, as well, to form this case against her, to make it look like she was promiscuous, that maybe she was sleeping around. Um, she didn't help her case at all with the men that surrounded her on a daily basis, you know, joking with one of them that... Um, they were looking for dead man's shoes, meaning that, you know, once the king died, that they would want to step in and marry her, which by the way, saying that was considered treason. And in the end, that's really what got Anne, that she said that statement. I don't think she did any of the things other than that, that she was accused of. You know, they make it sound like she um, slept with her brother, that she slept with every man who ever visited her chamber. I think that would have been irresponsible of her. I don't think she would have done something like that. I think she was a lot smarter than that. And for the Seymours, this was the perfect, the perfect opportunity for them to really raise their name at court. And with the King's eye already on Jane, with a little help, you know, maybe they, they were able to make him see what a better candidate Jane would be. She was relatively old at the time that they got married. If I recall correctly, I want to say hmm, they got married in June of 1536, if I remember, which was about a month after Anne Boleyn was executed. And so she would have been, I think, I want to say 29, maybe 30 at the most. And so she was kind of getting up there in age by the Tudor standards, of course. And they weren't married that long. I mean, she gave him a son in October of 1537, but unfortunately she ended up dying not long after um, of puerperal fever, which was very common back then. Some, some have suggested that maybe it was food poisoning that caused her death, but we'll stick with the, the original fever from childbirth. So her reign really wasn't that long at all. But it was long enough for her to secure the king with a son and an heir and to raise the Seymour brothers into a standing that they would have never experienced had she not had a son. Forever they will be linked, you know, to Prince Edward because he was the heir. So by that, they were brothers of the king. Yeah. Okay. So that gives a really good base of how Thomas got involved in a way with Henry VIII. Yeah. So when Jane married Henry, Thomas became part of the family. How did he get involved? Was he directly in charge of anything or was he, you know, friends with Henry or whatnot? After the marriage to Jane, the Seymour brothers, obviously Edward and Thomas, primarily, there was a third brother, but he didn't really spend a whole lot of time at court. Their roles definitely changed at court. They um, became the brothers of the queen. And then when Jane had Edward, they became the uncles to the future king, the heir apparent. And so that helped raise the status of the family 
dramatically at that point. And Thomas, you know, it was about, and forgive me if my, my years are a little off here, but in the early 1540s, Henry VIII made him captain of a ship. And from there, Thomas really built his base with Henry VIII and really showed Henry that I can be trusted. Let me show you what I can do. And Thomas was the third surviving son of his parents. So he was used to kind of being the last one to be recognized for things. And so I always feel like he felt the need to be noticed. So he would work extra hard, whereas his brother Edward, being the eldest son, things were just handed to him. Not saying he wasn't um, a good military man, he wasn't a good politician, but Thomas had to work a little bit harder for that. So when he was handed things like captain of a ship, I feel like he worked extra hard to, to excel in that position. And then eventually he rose from that um, to becoming an ambassador to the Low Countries. He was a vice admiral of the Navy. His positions really grew fast, not to the point that Edwards grew, but you could see that Thomas's hard work was paying off in the long run. And I believe from the original documents, when we look at those two, we see a strong relationship between Henry and Thomas because Henry was so willing to raise him up. You know, he was willing to make him a knight. He was willing to eventually make him part of the Privy Council. He would do what he could for Thomas because Thomas was loyal to him. And Thomas was well-liked. You know, it's often said that people really liked him. They liked him more than his brother Edward because I think Thomas was the fun one. He was the one that was maybe a little bit more laid back. He, maybe he didn't have as much pressure on him to excel as Edward did. So we often hear how, you know, the women loved him. He was tall and he was good looking. He was charismatic. The women loved him. The men seem to have gotten along with him really well. He also seems to have gotten along really well with his brother Edward at this time too. So he was a likable dude. And that's one thing that I think draws me back to him so much is that during this time in his life, prior to the death of Henry VIII, he was very well liked. And even the Earl of Surrey, who we hear stories, um, who says things like, you know, the, the Seymour family are upstarts and they were given everything and they didn't have the noble names. He even voted for him to be a Knight of the Garter. So there's some confusion there, I think, in the translation of history. Clearly, the Earl of Surrey either thought Thomas deserved to be a Knight of the Garter, or he saw it as a way to get more power for his own family. There was a time in, I think it was 1546, where Sir Thomas Howard III, Duke of Norfolk, Surrey's father, tried to arrange a marriage with his daughter, Mary, the Dowager Duchess of Richmond, who was married to Henry VIII's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy. She had been widowed for a while. The Duke of Norfolk had seen that the Seymours were climbing very high as a family and tried to arrange a marriage between his daughter and Thomas. He went so far as to get the approval from Henry VIII to do so. And at some point, it all fell apart. And we don't really know what happened at that time and why it fell apart, whether um, she wasn't interested, whether Thomas really wasn't interested, but it would have been a great marriage for both of them. It really would have raised Thomas's standings, but it didn't happen. And that's always the question is, 
why wasn't Thomas Seymour married? Clearly he came from a powerful family. He had a lot to offer. It could have been more, but having that Seymour name behind him made him an attractive candidate. And then we see it like a, a year later, uh, the Duke of Norfolk comes back again, and he's trying once again to arrange this marriage. Henry VIII approves it. Thomas says, okay, you know, I think this is a good idea. And then it falls apart. And the story goes that Mary Howard was against it. She didn't want to marry him. And I think there's some confusion there and exactly where it went wrong. I think for her, it was smarter for her to not remarry. I think she benefited more from being a, a widow and having all this land and still having this connection to the King of England through her deceased husband, who was his illegitimate son. So here we are, you know, if Thomas Seymour was born in 1507, 1508, he's almost 40 years old at this time, and he's still unmarried. And to me, for somebody who was so attractive to women and such a desirable candidate, it often makes me wonder, why hadn't he married? What was he waiting for? Yeah, I mean, you wonder if something was under the surface that we just don't know now. Well, now, now we have to look at, you know, what happened in 1543, because that gives us a little bit of a clue there as to later in his life, obviously, um, why he wasn't married yet. Because in 1503, that's when Catherine Parr comes into the picture. And she was in England with her husband, Lord Latimer, who at that time was dying. They had come to England for him to get better care. And it's believed at that time that's when she and Thomas had met, possibly through her brother, William Parr, who was a friend of the Seymour brothers. And from there, we find out that Thomas and Catherine fell in love. They had intended to marry one another. But then the king stepped in. Henry VIII had seen her at some point, had begun to send her gifts and then asked her to be his wife, to be his queen. And after much thought, Catherine, you know, saw it as a sign from God, is what we find out later. She saw that she could do more as queen than she could maybe as the wife of Sir Thomas Seymour. So God was telling her, you should become the wife of Henry VIII, and you can do much more for yourself and for religion. And so at that time, she chose to marry the king. Now, we don't know for certain what happened. We don't know if Henry VIII was familiar with the fact that she was in love with Thomas Seymour. It really makes you wonder whether or not he did. It's hard to imagine that maybe he didn't have an inkling that something was going on if Thomas had such a close relationship with the king. I believe at this time he was a gentleman of the privy chamber, but he was also traveling a lot on missions for the king. So he was kind of in and out, in and out. Did the king know did he force Thomas to leave once he found out? Or did Thomas just step back and go, okay, you know, the king is about to die. He's an old man. He's very sick. How long could this marriage possibly last? I can wait for her. We just don't know. And I think that's the part that drives me crazy because I'm looking for that evidence. What do we have to say? The king, you know, the king knew the king threatened Thomas or the king said, okay, you need to leave the country. Or if Thomas just said, okay, for the safety of myself and the, for the safety of this woman that I love, I'm going to step back and I'm just going to focus on work. And it seems like that's more maybe what had happened because he ended up traveling abroad far more after Henry VIII and Catherine Parr married and really made a name for himself at that point. And he was away from court a lot. But when he came back, you know, did he and Catherine see each other? 
if they, if they did, they would have to be very careful. I, I would suspect it was more of, they would see each other from across the room and, you know, maybe there was a little recognition in their eyes or, or whatnot, but it's an interesting story with the two of them because it does, it does show that they had a history. There was something going on there. And we know that from later on when we start looking at their love letters that she would have wished to marry him above all other men. And it's kind of sad because he had gone this long without having a wife. And a lot of people will say that's because he was waiting for the wealthiest widow or, you know, he was power hungry or, or whatnot. Yes, Catherine Parr offered all of that for him. But I would suspect she offered more than that. And then that was a bonus that she was wealthy. I just love them as a couple. I think when they were finally able to come together after the death of Henry VIII, that it seems like a true love story at that point. If we were to move ahead a little bit in time, because uh, that's what you, that's where you were, I think, is when the king died. Um, you mentioned that there's some really interesting things that happened with Thomas. So what were some of these interesting things? Oh, this is my favorite part in his story. <laughs> So Henry VIII died in January of 1547. Thomas was back at court and, you know, the day before Henry VIII was about to die, there was a lot of whispering going on at court. Um, and the word basically was that Henry VIII was going to want a council of 16 people to rule his son. He really did not want one man to run the kingdom. He, I think that worried him. He didn't want one man who wasn't a king to, to play king, so to speak, while his son was still in his minority. At this point, you know, um, little Prince Edward would have been about nine years old, not old enough to rule on his own. And here he is with two uncles who have some influence at court. Both are going to be included on the Privy Council. And as such... This would divide all the power amongst these 16 men. Well, Edward Seymour decided to start coming up with um, ways to make himself the most powerful man. So we see stories of him and William Pageant uh, whispering in the corridors outside of Henry VIII's room as he's dying. And, and Edward is promising William Paget all these great things. You know, if you, if you can do this for me, which means he, he was really trying to become Lord Protector, the ruler of the, of the realm after Henry VIII died. And he's like, if you do this for me in return, you'll be my closest advisor. I will listen to everything you say. And he's going around to everybody trying to get their votes for this. And it's alleged later in Thomas's act of attainder that Thomas agreed to this, that Thomas said, oh yeah, you know what? You can have all the power, no big deal. I think this is a great idea. Well, the problem is, I think Edward Seymour was promising things to everybody. You know, if you, if you give me your vote, this is what I'll do for you. And unfortunately he didn't necessarily pay people back the way that he said they would, which started a little bit of infighting. His brother Thomas was made Baron of Sudley at that time. So Edward Seymour became Lord Protector and Governor of the King's person. Um, the Earl of Warwick, 
who had been at that time um, Lord Lyle, he became the Earl of Warwick by giving up his title Lord High Admiral to Thomas Seymour. Now, he wasn't very happy about that. Now, Lord Lyle was John Dudley, for those who are unfamiliar. John Dudley comes from a long line of well-known Dudleys. Lots of them had been executed, and they had not been treated very well by the king in the past, by both King Henry VII and Henry VIII. And so when Edward Seymour came to John Dudley and said, hey, I have a deal to make for you. I want to make you the Earl of Warwick, which was a very powerful title. But in exchange, I need you to give up the title of Lord Admiral to my brother because I need to pacify him. Because Thomas at that time was not happy being made a baron. He needed something more. And so Edward, I think, believed that making Thomas Lord Admiral would give him a little bit more power and prestige. Well, unfortunately, this really wasn't what Thomas was looking for. I I feel like Edward making him Baron was kind of a slap in the face. He was the brother of the Lord Protector, the uncle of the King of England, and you just make him a Baron. It seems absurd to me. They didn't make him a Duke. They didn't make him an Earl. They made him a Baron of all things. So I think he was angry about that. And that might be just about the time when he began to rekindle his feelings with Catherine Parr because not only did she offer him her, you know, undying love because she still had a thing for him. Well, I think while she was married to to Henry VIII, that she was willing to come back to him so soon after Henry's death that he saw her as an opportunity as well. Like here's this woman I love. She's the dowager queen, which comes with lots of power, lots of money And so I think that may have been an influence for him to woo her into marriage sooner than what she had expected. And so they secretly married, it's believed, in May of 1547, so just mere months after Henry VIII had died on January 28th, 1547, which was far too soon um, for her to marry because she should have waited two years but it goes to show either her love for Thomas or Thomas's ability to convince her to move faster on it. I think there was also the fear that the council would try to get her to remarry someone else and that she wouldn't have a choice. And so by marrying her secretly, that would solidify his standings with her. Now, they eventually had to, to go behind Edward Seymour's back and get the approval of the king whom Catherine Parr was very close to. Edward VI, you know, she was like a a mother to him. She was all that he knew almost his entire life. And so they were able to convince him to suggest the marriage. So Thomas Seymour, we read the stories of Thomas Seymour paying little Edward's servants to ask him, you know, don't you think your uncle Thomas should marry? Of course, yes, I think he should marry. Well, who do you think he should marry? And the first thing that little Prince Edward, or King Edward at this point, said was, well, I think he should marry the Anne of Cleves. And then he changes his mind and says, no, no, I changed my mind. I think he should marry my sister Mary to change her opinion. So he's referring to religion, how Mary at this time was devout Catholic, just like her mother. And England was more um, a reformist nation at that time, leaning closer to Protestantism. And so the servant comes back to Thomas Seymour and says, well, I talked to the king. 
you know, he thought maybe you should marry Mary. And Thomas laughs about this. I'm not going to marry her. Like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Go back to him and ask him what he thinks about me marrying the Dowager Queen. And so the servant goes back. And of course, all this time, Thomas is paying the servant to get him to do these things. And the servant goes back and he suggests to the king, you know, well, how about the Dowager Queen, Catherine Parr? And the king thinks, that's a wonderful idea. I love my uncle. I love my stepmother. I think this is great. And so he writes out the approval and sends it on. And from that point, you know, they were seen as officially married. And somewhere in that time, Thomas's brother, Edward Seymour, finds out about it. And he is not happy that his brother had gone behind his back because now his brother is married to the queen, which is a pretty big deal. Thomas now has more power than he had had before. Granted, Edward Seymour is still the Lord Protector of the realm and the governor of the king's person. But Thomas doesn't even seem to be satisfied with this at that point. He seems to get become a little bit more hungry for the power. And it seems like the brothers are at bitter odds about this. And Thomas believes that as the uncle of the king, he should also be made governor of the king's person. And he hires lawyers to look into it for him. And the lawyers come back and tell him, yes, by all right, you should have that position. If we look back to the reign of King Henry VI as a minor, he had two uncles, and those uncles then shared those positions. One was Lord Protector, one was Governor of the Realm. But Edward Seymour and his council of men, who he had essentially bribed to be there, would not do it for him. They just refused, and I think they, they were fearful for one reason or another, of Thomas having any more power than he already had. From that point, it just got worse. It just escalated from there. And thankfully, Thomas had Catherine Parr to kind of keep him in check a little bit, because I think Thomas um, had this ability to wear his emotions on his sleeve, to overreact at times. And this is kind of where I feel a connection with Thomas Seymour. I feel like he and I were a lot alike in that respect, where I can be kind of emotional sometimes. And if somebody upsets me, I'm going to do what I can um, to get what's rightfully mine. And I see Thomas doing that as well. But while he's got this fight with his brother over these titles, then he begins a fight with him about the queen's jewels, of all things. And Catherine Parr's upset that she has personal jewels that are locked in the tower that belong to her, that were gifts from King Henry, that were a gift from her mother that she can't gain access to. She had a right to these jewels. These were not owned by the crown. These were Catherine Parr's jewels. And between Edward Seymour and his wife, they just refused to give them up. They were like, no, you can't have them. And it just embittered, I think, both of them even more towards the rule of Edward Seymour, that Catherine Parr even, you know, made comments about how she could have, I think, was spit in his face. She was so mad, you know, had he been closer um, and how she called Edward Seymour's wife Anne names like that hell. Like there was a lot of fighting between these two couples and it didn't start until Thomas had married Catherine Parr. I think there was some jealousy going on on both ends and it just escalated. It got worse. I feel like the soap opera of Henry VIII kind of continued after his death. <laughs> it, it did. It, it, you know, Thomas Seymour made sure that it continued after his death. And, you know, and then Catherine Parr, after not having any children her entire life, miraculously becomes pregnant 
at an older age and they're both over the moon excited that, you know, she's pregnant and they're going to have a child and what an exciting time. And everybody seems happy about this. She's over the moon. Thomas is over the moon. In their letters, you know, he talks to her lovingly about their, his little knave and, you know, telling her to keep take care of herself. And in letters, you know, he's off at court dealing with politics. And he asks her to send a portrait of herself to him so he can look upon it. And they were happy together. And it just seems like the circumstances around them just made it a very uncomfortable time in their relationship or even at court, maybe. I'm sure this was dividing sanctions at court as well. But then when we get to um, Catherine Parr and having their child, you know, they eventually move out to Sudley Castle because Thomas was the Baron of Sudley. They move out to Sudley Castle to get away from court, to get away from the politics so she can be somewhere quiet to give birth to their son. And they move out there in the summer of 1548. And at the end of August, she's, you know, in labor, preparing to give birth. And she gives birth to a healthy daughter, you know. And even though it was a daughter, Thomas was still happy. He was over the moon to have a daughter. He was, I think, even more in love with Catherine at that moment because here they are, these two. They finally made it. They have a child together. Everything seems great. And then like five days later, she dies. And Thomas is devastated by this. You know, he is just crushed. And he makes comments about how he was beside himself with grief. He went so far as to disband her household. Um, he just, I feel like at that point, he lost it. You know, he was so sad, so broken down. And then he kind of went off the rails. I think he felt at that point like he had to avenge her death somehow or something and wanted to get his brother removed from power. And he would do whatever it took at that point to either become the governor of the king or to remove his brother. And that's where we kind of get into the gray areas of what happened at this time. It's clear to me that he was up to something. He clearly was trying for a power grab. And he worked with um, William Sherrington. He worked at the Bristol Mint. And he worked with him um, to coin money. And I think William Sherrington, in his original deposition, stated that Thomas Seymour had come to him. And they were good friends. And he had helped um, remodel Sudley for Thomas. And Thomas came to him and basically told him, hey, I have all this metal so to speak, some gold and silver, and I need you to mint some coins for me because I need these coins to buy an army of 10,000 men. And the story goes that Thomas had plundered that gold and silver from ships, abusing his role as Lord Admiral. And William Sheraton went along with it because he was in a little bit of trouble himself. He had issues with embezzling money and saw that he was going to get caught and went to Thomas, who was a powerful man. And Thomas said, I'll protect you, but in return, this is what I need. And so whether or not Thomas was trying to buy soldiers, an army, you know, I think it's likely that he was from the other stories that we hear from the men who were closest to him, that he was asking them to go to their countries and, and to, um, get men involved and do whatever it took to get them on Thomas's side. So that would include paying them, giving them maybe some good ale, things like that. But when we get to near the end of Thomas's life, the part 
I think that gets me the most is when we talk about the event that led to his arrest. Now, prior to this event, there had already been somebody who had stepped forward and made accusations about Thomas plundering these pirate ships. And so this was already in motion behind the scenes. And I think there's a lot of people who forget that this was the case. But on January 16th of 1549, the story goes that Thomas went to Hampton Court Palace where Edward VI was living at the time. And he dispersed the guard and sent them on various errands. And then he went to the king's chamber. And when he arrived there, the king's dog barked. And he allegedly shot the dog and he was going to kidnap the king or kill the king or whatnot. And upon the dog barking and him shooting it, fled. Well, the next day he was arrested for this. But there is no contemporary evidence other than rumor that I have found in original documents that say anything about Thomas being there, that any, there were eyewitnesses, nothing. There is nothing to say I physically saw Thomas Seymour at Hapta Court Palace. I saw him shooting the dog. You know, there's nothing. So I tend to look at it more as this was just another way, since they already had evidence compiling against Thomas for plundering these ships, which was really against, obviously, what it was to be Lord Admiral. They were just trying to build a case against him, just like they had with Anne Boleyn. And so he was arrested the following day. And all he wanted was a fair trial. He wanted to be able to say, no, let's be clear here. You know, I just want a fair trial. Let me say my piece. And they didn't want to give him a fair trial. They, you know, members of the council came to him and started asking him all these questions. You know, they had brought up these 33 charges against him. And they started with the first three. He answered them. And it looks like he answered them honestly you know, basically saying he wished no ill on his brother. He wished no ill on the king. Um, and here's why he did what he did in those charges. And that's something I tried to go into a little bit more on my website for Thomas Seymour. But it seems like he was unfairly, unfairly arrested. He, I think it could have been handled, handled a little bit differently at the time. And had they given him the opportunity to testify um, I think he would have convinced everybody that he did not deserve to be executed by any means. I mean, when he was locked up in the tower, um, the guy that was watching over him often reported to Edward Seymour about what he was saying and such. And there's one day where he talks about how Thomas didn't want to eat. He turned away his food and how sad he was that he thought he had all these friends and now he felt abandoned by them all. And how can you just, it's just heart-wrenching when you think about that. He lost his wife. His daughter obviously was no longer with him because he's locked up. And here he is all alone and there's nobody there to defend him. And really nobody could, no matter what happened. I think at that point, just like Anne Boleyn, they had decided he was guilty. And the only way to protect the king and protect Edward Seymour was through execution. And Edward Seymour kind of went along with it. And I think they told the king things that made him fear his uncle. Whether they be true, I doubt that. I think they were saying things like, the, you know, your uncle wanted to kill you and take the realm for himself, and Thomas would not have done that. There's no reason for him to want to kill the king. That was his power. That had always been his power was his nephew. So that's where I look at it, and I go, wow, it just feels like they felt so threatened by him. He was liked 
people would get behind him. He just had this way about him. And so he became a threat to his brother. He became a threat to the council. And so they had to get rid of him. Do we know if there were other reasons beside them feeling possibly threatened as to why this could have been all constructed and blaming him and accusing him? Do we know any other things beside that? Off the top of my head, I feel like it was the fact that they felt threatened by him and that he maybe caused some um, instability in the kingdom, that people were worried about the protection of the king. But ultimately, he was a threat. I really see him as a threat to those who were currently in charge. John Dudley, um, from what I can tell, turned on him. At one point, they were friends, and then by the end, he had completely done a 180, and he was ready to disown his friend and do whatever it took to take the power for himself. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, after Thomas was executed, John Dudley, the Earl of Warwick, got the title Lord Admiral back, so he definitely benefited from it. The only person who didn't benefit from the execution of Thomas Seymour was his brother, Edward Seymour, as the Lord Protector. It actually weakened him and his power because he executed his brother. And so in the end, a couple years later, Edward Seymour was taken down by John Dudley and he was executed. And suddenly we have John Dudley as the president of the council. So it's all politics. It all comes down to politics and men being power hungry, really. That's really fascinating. We don't really think about the politics too much of the time because it's not similar to the politics we see now. We don't see how the courts really ran unless you start digging into files and such. So for your own research with Thomas, how much research have you done or what type of research have you done? Sure. Wow. I love that question because I've worked so hard on researching him. And and when I first started, the first thing I did was look to see what books were available about him, what nonfiction books. And really, there is one. There is one book that is just on Thomas Seymour, and that was by um, John McLean. It was written, if I remember, in the 1800s, and it's mostly about his military life. So I started there. The military stuff, honestly, has never really interested me that much, but because it was such a large portion of his career, I've started really digging into it a little bit more. But that's where I started. And then from there, I went to... um, maybe other nonfiction books where he was mentioned in them. So I looked at the people closest to him at the time where he might be included in their story. So that would include Catherine Parr, uh, his sister Jane, his brother Edward, and of course the Princess Elizabeth, who there's a big story there um, with their stories combining together. So I kind of started with those books. And then from there I went back. And I went back to as many of the original documents as I could find and began to learn how to read them. And that's probably the most difficult thing that I've done thus far. There are a lot of translated documents online that you can look at that were from the originals that they were translated in the Victorian times. And a lot of those are seen now by historians as being unreliable. And so I decided I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at these original documents myself and attempt to translate them to make sure that something wasn't translated incorrectly, to make sure I have a better understanding of why these were written, a better understanding, better view of the 16th century mindset, so to speak, um, and how politics worked and why these documents were drafted. 
I love right now I'm going through a bunch of old documents that were the inventories taken after Thomas's arrest. So they went to all of his properties after he was arrested and they took inventory of everything that they found at these locations. He had lots of locations, well over 40 locations. And the one thing that I am noticing from these documents is that the handwriting is atrocious. It is not only are you reading old English, but you're reading like chicken scratch old English. So trying to figure out each letter, what it's saying does prove difficult. And so I could see how um, these Victorian historians could have made mistakes while making these translations. And so it's been fun to be able to go back through these documents and get a look for myself and kind of understand the bigger picture, understand everything that was going on during the time that he was alive and seeing if I can come up with new conclusions. And, and since going through these old documents, that was one of the reasons how I discovered, and I had said earlier that, you know, Thomas supposedly agreed to his brother becoming Lord Protector and that he signed this document saying as much. I have found the original document. His signature is not on there. So that leads me to question, is this the original document that I'm actually looking at, or is it a copy? And is there another one somewhere else where he did sign it? And if there is, why isn't it available? You know, was it destroyed at some point? I don't know. But it's interesting to investigate these things and to look into the mystery further and hopefully to find new evidence that people haven't found before to say, here's why I believe this and here's the evidence that I have to back it up. Absolutely. Primary source work is always the funnest part. It definitely is. And it's, I feel it's very fulfilling now. You know, I would go back before and I would look through the translated state papers and the, and the acts of the Privy Council and read them and go, this is amazing. But they're always like, the way they are written is a summary of a letter. It doesn't actually give you the word for word. It's just a summary of this is what the letter said. This is who signed it. This is where it was located or whatever. When you go back to these original documents, you get to see the whole letter, not just a synopsis of what the letter was about. You get a greater feel for what was really going on. What was the most surprising thing about the language during that time? Oh, I, well, that's easy. The spelling. The spelling is so hard to get past when you first begin because they didn't have standardized spelling at the time. So when they write, everything was written phonetically. So when they could write one word three different ways in the same letter. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I wish I had a good example to give you right now, but it seems ridiculous if I were to say, I'm going to write the word can. I would spell it C-A-N, but they would have it as maybe C-A-N, K-A-N, K-H-A-N, just these weird and all in the same letter. And so it gets a little bit confusing sometimes when you're looking at it, trying to figure out, okay, is that really the word that they're talking about? And trying to put it into the context of the letter, it makes it a little bit more challenging. Oh, absolutely. So when you consider the changes in language, did you find that their sentence structure was very different? It was all very flowery is the way I would describe it. You know, they all the letters would start the same. You know, I hardly recommend all the, all the things that we would see as unnecessary now. But it, did, it was very beautifully written. It was almost poetic at some points where you read it and go, wow, their language was so beautiful compared to the way we speak today. It was like poetry. 
when they wrote letters, I, I often wonder what it was like when they spoke to each other, if it was the same way, if they spoke so beautifully, or if they just wrote that way because that was the standard way to write. That's one of my favorite things. It's almost like reading Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if it's because paper was so hard to come by. I mean, it had to be a crazy process to get paper back then, too. Right. Yes, definitely. I agree with that. That was a whole process. I remember watching a documentary once on that, how they came up. Um, you know, a lot of it was made from animal skin and having to dry it out. And you know, could you imagine? We take for granted nowadays having paper at our disposal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I have a few questions that are, I guess, a little bit left field. So if you were to say, maybe at the beginning of Thomas's you know, quote unquote career. So when his sister became queen, what would have been his typical day? Like what would have been his duties more specifically? Do we have any information on that? Hmm. If I go back to the beginning, let's say when he first came to court, I could probably better answer that. Um, because when he first came to court, he was a messenger for Sir Francis Bryan, like I said. And Francis Bryan at the time was an ambassador in France. And so there was letters going back and forth. And it was Thomas's sole responsibility to retrieve these letters and bring them back to the king. And so it's believed that he never actually went to France at that time and that he just retrieved these letters from somebody else who had delivered them from Francis and then brought them to the king. So after that, we really don't know what else he did at that time. So if we move ahead a little bit, um, you said his duties became important. He became more busy. What would be the typical day for him then at that point? That's the sad thing is there's a time period between 1530 and I'd say 1540-41, where we don't really get a whole lot of detail about what he was doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it's not really until he is sent on diplomatic missions that we start getting an influx of letters that he's writing back and forth to Henry VIII. Um, letters, you know, telling him, you know, you sent me to this country to do this for you. Here is an update. Um, on what we've achieved thus far. We have spoken to either a regent or we've spoken to the king or queen, and here's the information they have provided us with. It would be like today if, um, we'll use this for an example, I had been working from home. By the end of every day, I had to send my boss an email and say, here's what I've accomplished for the day. That's essentially what Thomas Seymour was doing at that time, is he would send letters to the king and he would say, here's what what we have accomplished for the day. I will continue to do my best for you and I will let you know how it goes. So a lot of correspondence is what we see. He was doing a lot of stuff um, military wise too. You know, he was pulled from a diplomatic mission to be a marshal of the army for a while. And so he was very well recognized as both a diplomat and a military man, Henry VIII trusted him to do these things for him. There's mentions, you know, about his accomplishments. There's mentions of him getting sick. It's interesting when you look at the letters because it does give you a better idea, a better look at the actual person, but sometimes they're very dry and very difficult to read and to get past all the weird language that they used and to really get a grasp for the people and what was going on in the time. It's like you just want to pick out all the unnecessary words and go, just tell me what really happened instead of all this 
flowery stuff, did you succeed or no? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like the TLDR, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's how I feel when I have to read these. I look at them and go, oh my gosh, this is so boring, but I know I have to read it so that I understand what was going on at the time. Absolutely. So you've also mentioned some wars and some military. During King Henry VIII's time and right after his death, what type of wars were happening in history? Some people might not be aware of this. As far as Thomas's career goes, he was involved um, in the Siege of Pest um, and the Siege of Buda, which was prior to that. But the Siege of Pest was basically, if I remember correctly, and I don't have my notes in front of me, and I mentioned I'm really bad with the military stuff, but they were, um, <laughs> they were aiding the emperor and his brother Maximilian II against the Ottoman Empire. And so it was Thomas's job to go out and try to hire men to help the cause. And so we see letters of him writing to King Henry, letting him know the status of the men, how many men he has, how they are doing health-wise, what kind of provisions that they have. And that's really the extent of it and how he feels things are going. You know, this is how I feel it's going and I think we'll be successful or, or whatnot. Before the Siege of Pest was even completed, Thomas was pulled from the grounds. And if I remember correctly, I think he was sent back to Vienna um, to start negotiating something else for England. He really traveled all over the place. It's quite amazing. He was really worldly for the time. And I think people don't realize that about him. I don't know how many languages he spoke. It's presumed he knew some French. Um, but you would think with all the missions that he went on that he would have picked up some of the other languages as well. But a lot of the time his stuff was based in the sea. So um, there was a battle um, down by Portsmouth that um, was to protect it from the French. And it was about that time that I had read that the, the plague had broken out. And so Many of Thomas's ships in his fleet at that time had come down with the plague. And that was very interesting for me to read because it had also mentioned at that time that Thomas had gotten sick, that he was unwell. It's not 100% clear if he caught the plague, if he was infected with the plague, or if he was unwell because he was upset that he had so many men that had come down with the plague. Regardless, he was unable to do anything. So I feel like he was definitely quarantined for about a month which I thought was interesting because I feel like that's not spoken about very often. But his military stuff is something that I'm working on getting better at understanding because it is a big part of him. In the book that I'm writing on him, sometimes it's easier to put things in writing than it is to, to speak them. <laughs> Especially with military things, I'm guessing you have lots of dates and movements and it's just much yes. more complex. Yeah, absolutely. I was just curious, um, because I'm not super familiar with the wars and the different conflicts that they had around that time period. Mm -hmm. There were definitely a lot during the reign of Henry VIII. He had something against the French, because that seems like who he wanted to fight against the most. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the French in Scotland, of course, there was the Battle of Flodden back in 1513. That one to me is interesting. Obviously, at that time, Thomas was just a small kid. But that was the one where Henry VIII went off to France. It was at the later called Battle of the Spurs. And his wife, Catherine of Aragon, was regent of the country. And she led England to victory against the Scottish um, when the English army were able to kill King James IV. 
And so that was quite a big deal at that time that, you know, she was able to defeat the King of Scotland, who by chance was the brother-in-law of Henry VIII at the time. That just makes it all the more complicated, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. You talked a little bit about his personality, but do you have any cool or fun facts? Like, did he have a funny sense of humor? Was there something else that you've seen in your research? I think the funniest thing that I've seen is one description of him says that he had a magnificent voice. (laughs) What does that mean exactly? Was he a good singer? Did he have a very white voice? What was it? There was a book that I read about Catherine Parr by Susan James, and she had written in her book that Thomas Thomas Seymour was a singer and that he had written music. I've never found any evidence of this, so I'm very curious where she found this, but that would explain the magnificent voice. So he was quite the catch from what it sounds like. Well, I wonder if his travels are some of the reason that he didn't marry. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Because it was a long time. I mean, if he was born, even if we go to 1508, if he was born in 1508, you would think by the time he's... 20 or in his early 20s that he would have been married by that time and that would have brought us to the time when he first arrived at court roughly so why did it take so long you know some people have suspected that maybe he was gay and that's why he didn't get married i don't think that's the case we don't know for sure but i don't doubt that he had his little liaisons with women like all men at that time did but there's no evidence that he had any illegitimate children so it's interesting that is always the question is why did it take him until he was 40 before he got married what was he waiting for that's a really fascinating question when i was writing my fiction book on him which i have since shelved for the meantime that was one of the things that i wanted to explain in my fiction book was here's the explanation as to why he didn't marry and so i had laid out a whole story which of course was like pulling at the heartstrings and someday i'll i'll reveal it to everybody but i would like to imagine that the the story i made up in my mind was the real life story of why it took him so long to marry Absolutely. Those unanswered questions in history are kind of what fascinates historians and keeps us, you know, going down rabbit holes, really. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, because we want those answers. We want to do whatever we can to find out what the truth is. But the mystery is what keeps bringing us back. It's like a good mystery novel. Who doesn't like a good mystery novel? Exactly. And I guess that leads us a little bit into my fun question that I like to ask. So I don't know if you've had time to think about this, but if you had a time machine, and I know you're fascinated by Thomas, but would it be Thomas that you'd want to either observe or look at or participate in? Or is there another time period or another person that you'd be curious to meet? It would definitely be Thomas. And if there were a specific date that I would want to go back to, it would be January 16th, 1549 at Hampton Court Palace to see what really happened with the dog. To see if he was at home reading next to his fireplace. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or was he there? You know, I just don't think he would be dumb enough to go there and shoot a dog and draw all this attention. And presumably he, you know, he's the, the uncle of the king. The dog would know him, you would think, because he visited Edward often. So why would the dog have barked at him? This is just, I have so many questions. Let's say we take Thomas out of the equation. What would be your second favorite place to visit or person to visit? Ooh, what would that be? I'm sure it would have to be... Well, you know what? I was going to say something with Anne Boleyn, but that's so predictable. So I'd want to go back and see Henry's courtship with Jane Seymour to see her part in it, to see who she really was. 
outside of what we've been told for centuries. Was she really such a malign, pious character? Or was she a little bit more mischievous, maybe like her brother? Yeah, that is a very good question, actually. Because in families, you have different personalities, but who knows, right? Definitely. Part of me feels like she was she was more like Catherine Parr in the respect that she was religious and she seemed a little bit more level-headed, but we have her two brothers who show us such different character that you can't help but wonder, did she have a little bit of that devious side in her as well, being a Seymour? I don't know. Was it a genetic thing or not, right? <laughs> right? We'll never know. No, no, I guess not. And I guess we can wrap up with, was there anything else that you wanted to share? I know we can go on for a long time, but this is a really, really solid overview for anybody who's interested. Was there anything else you wanted to share? If you're interested in learning more about Thomas Seymour, I do have a blog that I started a few years ago called the Thomas Seymour Society. So it's thomasseymoursociety.com that you can go to and see some of the things that I've put on there. I don't have everything on there because some of it obviously I want to leave for my future nonfiction or biography book that I'm doing on him. And I just... I feel like once I can get all that down on paper, that it will show Thomas Seymour to you in an entirely new light, that I hope he no longer has that stigma of being a cad, of being a molester, of all of these rude things that have been said about him for centuries. I really want to show a different side of him that hasn't been shown before. So that definitely check out the blog. Um, I talk about him a lot on my podcast. Somehow I find a way to work him into almost every conversation, but I can't help it. He's, yeah, I know him best. So I'm always looking forward to that moment in your podcast, to be honest. I always oh. love it when you can tie it in. <laughs> I have to restrain myself most of the time. I think in the last one that I did, there was the opportunity where I could. And I thought, Rebecca, you don't need to always make it about Thomas Seymour. <laughs> it's so great it's okay you know what some people don't even know who he is so hopefully after today they can have a better idea of what's going on and who he was a little bit you know until your book is written yeah I hope so I think that's my biggest mission in life right now is to to explain him to people who aren't familiar with him and those who are familiar with him and have a certain idea of who he was to maybe get them to go back and think about it in a different way. And I know there have been several people who have mentioned to me, you've changed my mind about him. And it's not that I'm trying to change your mind. I'm just trying to get you to look at the evidence in a different way and maybe recognize where what you've been told for centuries is coming from and look at it from an outsider's perspective, maybe as an investigator and just look at what evidence remains instead of what words have always been said about him. Yes. I just want to thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing all this crazy knowledge you have about Thomas Seymour. It's been enlightening and super interesting. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a joy to talk about my favorite person in Tudor history. <laughs> okay, we'll talk to you later. <laughs> oh my goodness, Rebecca. That was so incredible. We just love your passion for Thomas Seymour. Rebecca had mentioned her website, thomasseymoursociety.com, which I'll also put in the show notes. You can also always message her on Twitter or through her other social media, which will also be in the show notes. 
And of course, keep an eye out because she is in the process of writing her book. I, for one, cannot wait to read it. And instead of a book recommendation, I would actually suggest you go visit her website. It's chock full of information. Don't forget, you can find me on social media at History A, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And if you have the time to rate this podcast, apparently it helps people find me. So that's always fun. I really appreciate the effort. And of course, I have to thank my husband, Jamie, and our brood of kids, our family, our friends. Without them, I would not be adventuring through history. Un grand merci. Those under and blah. <laughs> <laughs> my French brain's in the wrong spot right now. Okay. Oh my gosh.